today on the Word Preacher Podcast, Servants of the King, Trinitarianism, and it's going to work out. I'm Brett Jensen, and this is the Word Preacher Podcast. Our Come Follow Me curriculum for this upcoming week will bring us to Isaiah 40 through 49. Let's go ahead and get started uh, with a little bit of reading. We're going to talk about being a servant and how it's represented in different ways. So this begins in Isaiah 41, 8 and 9, which reads, But thou, Israel, art my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the seed of Abraham my friend, thou whom I have taken from the ends of the earth, and called thee from the chief men thereof, and said unto thee, Thou art my servant. I have chosen thee, and not cast thee away. So in this passage, we have uh, actually Israel being portrayed as a servant. Um, And certainly, Israel was created for a specific purpose. They were meant to serve a cause. There's a reason that God has a chosen people. And so he's absolutely right to call them servant. They were set apart for a purpose. And when they are not doing that purpose, well, it doesn't end well. It doesn't go well for them. Being a part of that purpose is vital to fulfilling the promises of the Lord uh, with respect to building his kingdom in the latter days. Now, um, Isaiah also depicts how others were used to benefit this concept of Israel serving a purpose. For example, in Isaiah 45, it reads as follows. Thus saith the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden to subdue nations before him, and I will loose the loins of kings to open before him the two-leaved gates, and the gates shall not be shut. I will go before thee and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of brass and cut in sunder the bars of iron. And I will give thee the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places that thou mayest know that I, the Lord, which call thee by thy name, am the God of Israel. For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, mine elect, I have even called thee by thy name. I have surnamed thee, though thou hast not known me. So again, we have a reference to Uh, Jacob or Israel being the servant of the Lord, but also Cyrus prophesied as being instrumental into helping God fulfill the purpose of Israel, that he would strengthen the king of Persia and uh, enrich him so that he would be able to bring him Uh, bring Israel back to Jerusalem, even though he didn't know this purpose. And of course, historically, uh, they showed Cyrus this prophecy, and he thought, hey, that's great. Well, who am I to say no to the Lord? Go ahead, go back to Jerusalem. It was very instrumental. Just the existence of this prophecy from Isaiah 
uh, kind of helped to fulfill itself. Amazing. Uh, of course, other people were meant to help in uh, Israel becoming a servant, a good servant, and serving its purpose. If we look in Isaiah 43, 3 through 4, it reads, For I am the Lord thy God, the Holy One of Israel, thy Savior. I gave Egypt for thy ransom, Ethiopia and Sheba for thee. Since thou wast precious in my sight, thou hast been honorable, and I have loved thee. Therefore will I give men for thee, and people for thy life. So, the role of servant, when we're talking about Israel, um, as we kind of talked about before, emphasizes a specific purpose. It's, he has a goal that he wants to accomplish with all men. And this chosen people is supposed to be an example to all the world for how God can save someone. The message of the gospel, the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ, can be seen in the way that God keeps his covenants with Israel. All right. A servant to make straight the ways of the Lord. This is a really important prophecy. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 through 5, which reads, The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. Now, if you've read from the New Testament and seen in the Gospels the depiction of John the Baptist, it's not very difficult to see that here was literally the voice of a man in the wilderness crying, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, and make straight his paths. Is literally what he did. A great servant sent to prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah. And he emphasized the very first principles of the gospel to do this. This was the mechanism for making straight the way of the Lord. Faith, repentance, and baptism. Even today, this is like the way that you can make straight the path for God to be a greater part of your life. You enter the gate. You have faith. You repent. Remove the obstacles that are keeping you from him, from recognizing him, from understanding him, um, from fighting against him. You remove those things, you go through that gate, and you are on a straight and narrow, or as President Nelson calls it, a covenant path that leads, ultimately, if you keep walking it, to God. As a, as a result of this servant of the Lord, this vital servant who did this great work to prepare the way, you saw a natural transition from his disciples. His, the number of his disciples decreased, and the number of Jesus' disciples increased. 
Now, this was not true of other people who were less concerned about the fundamentals of the gospel and more concerned about counting their steps on the Sabbath day or other rituals. Their disciples were not prepared to recognize or embrace the Messiah, but John's were. What a great servant he was. Of course, not just John the Baptist uh, being a servant is something that's depicted in Isaiah. Jesus himself is described in the same way. If we look at Isaiah 42, the first four verses, it reads, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, mine elect in whom my soul delighteth, I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not cry, nor lift up, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he shall not break, and the smoking flax shall he not quench. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. He shall not fail, nor be discouraged, till he have set judgment in the earth, and the isles shall wait for his law. So Isaiah, um, in many places in Isaiah, we see passages that proclaim the glorious reign of a king returning to his rightful place to rule over all nations of earth. But here we have a different version. His servant, his elect, in whom, his, in whom the soul of the father delighteth, or in whom he is well pleased. This version of him was not going to cry or lift up, cause his voice to be heard in the street, not even make such an impact that an already bruised reed would be broken. He's not going to put out the smoking strings and flax. He's going to emphasize judgment and truth. This is the Messiah that we read in the New Testament. Matthew specifically points out that Jesus fulfills this prophecy. Tragically, many in Judea and Galilee failed to recognize him. And perhaps part of the reason that he was not recognized was the pride that had swelled up in the hearts of many to make them think that they were too good to be servants. If the Lord is talking about this servant who is his elect, in whom his soul delighteth, and we think we're too good to be servants, we've got a problem. And you can see the contrast between the philosophies of men and the philosophy of our Lord and Master Jesus Christ, who taught his apostles that he that is chief would be servant. Our attitude toward being a servant, and our attitude towards other servants impacts our ability to follow the chief servant of God himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, let's change gears and talk about a Trinitarian view. Let's start with a couple of different passages, beginning in Isaiah 43. This is verses 10 through 13. Ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that ye may believe me and understand that I am he. 
Before me, there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. I have declared and have saved. I have showed when there was no strange God among you. Therefore ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord, that I am God. Ye, before the day was I am he, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. I will work, and who shall let it? Another passage, a little bit uh, later, Isaiah 44, 6 through 8, it reads, Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, and I am the last, and beside me there is no God. And who, as I shall call, and shall declare it, and set it in order for me, since I appointed the ancient people, and the things that are coming, and shall come, let them show unto them. Fear ye not, neither be afraid. Have not I told thee that from that time, and have declared it, ye are even my witnesses? Is there a God beside me? Yea, there is no God. I know not any. Okay, very bold scriptures. Very profound scriptures. Many people with modern interpretations and philosophies have used these verses that I've read to justify a concept of Trinitarianism. What this is, is essentially an effort made by the remnants of Christians who were still around after the apostles had been killed. And they were making an effort to reconcile the Hebrew monotheistic tradition of one God and the New Testament understanding that presented the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. The result of these sorts of deliberations between people who were just debating what they thought this meant, these weren't apostles. Uh, they may have held titles of bishop, but they were just remnants who had survived. The result uh, was several creeds. They're not found in the Bible, but they're accepted by many modern Christians who are either Catholic or offshoots from the Catholic Church. Now, what it, it's difficult to understand. I've had Trinitarians try and use a couple of analogies to express the idea of how can we have one God and also the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. One uh, analogy that was used was comparing it to an egg, which has a shell, white, egg whites, and a yolk, but it's all one egg. And I was told that this is how the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost are one God. Now, when I asked whether this analogy means that, so God is one being and part of him is the Father and part is the Son and part of the Holy Ghost, I was informed that that's not what it means, that, that I didn't understand the analogy. Um, I was given another analogy at a different time that uh, the, the Trinity is like water, which can take the form of ice and be solid, or liquid at room temperature, or steam, water vapor. But it's all still water. And this is how the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost are one. Now, 
when I asked whether this means that under some circumstances, God is the Father, under others, he's the Son, and under others, he's the Holy Ghost, I was informed that that's not what that means. I even had one individual that informed me about some study in Scientific American that explored the pressure and temperature combination in which all three states could be found. But of course, when I asked if the concept of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost were then just labels for the behaviors of God, like states of matter, I was informed that that was not accurate. That's not what it means. So ultimately, all of these analogies that I was given all failed in meaningful ways to explain the concept of Trinitarianism, and that's because it's ultimately incoherent. Now, this does not mean that Latter-day Saints deny the oneness of God, only that we have a specific, consistent, scripture and revelation-based understanding of that oneness. So when we look to these scriptures, for example, in Isaiah 44, 6-8, that says, Beside me there is no God. And then also, Is there a God beside me? Yea, there is no God, I know not any. It helps to get a little understanding of what the context. Isaiah is talking about how nothing is comparable to God. And if you keep going in Isaiah 44, you can see that he's comparing himself to the forming of molten or graven images as God, calling them unprofitable. And of course, compared to the Lord, uh, there's nothing. <laughs> Baal wasn't going to do anything. Dagon was not going to help them. Uh, Ashtoreth, not going to help. Molech couldn't compare. Beside the Lord, nothing that human beings craft can make any kind of comparison. He's incomparable. And that's what's being communicated in these Isaiah passages. One of the issues with having a patron god or patron saint in an area is the idea that there's some important difference that can be found in the will or the motivations or the abilities of one individual in the pantheon as opposed to some other individual. And even in modern times, we'll see certain individuals, even within the Church of Jesus Christ, we'll see people that do things like try and pray to a mother in heaven as opposed to a father in heaven because, I don't know, they think they're going to get a different answer Maybe they'll like one more than the other. This is where the, the oneness of God needs to be understood. A person is not going to get a different answer from the Father than they get from the Son or the Holy Ghost than the Father, which is why Jesus could say, I am the Father. When his apostles asked to see the Father, he could say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I am in the Father and the Father in me. His apostles weren't going to get like different answers or understanding from the Father than what he was giving them. Jesus described this oneness himself in the best way possible 
in John 17, the intercessory prayer, in which he prayed to his father, note, prayed to a separate person, that his apostles could be one in the same way that he and his father were one. Now, obviously, this isn't some sort of fusion of being or essence, but it is a complete unity in love, in will, in righteousness, in decision-making. Individuals remain individuals, but in every other way. We should eliminate contention, division, unrighteousness, strife, pride, and any other ununifying or ungodly attribute that exists among us. It is not wrong to say there is one God. You can see that in the Book of Mormon. You can see that emphasized in multiple places. Because in terms of will, of love, of decision, and almost any consideration you can come up with, there is one God. In terms of individuals, the Godhead consists of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And he intends for human beings to be like him, to be joint heirs with Christ and be perfectly unified with him. In the end, uh, we have some counsel from Isaiah that I'd like to read. Uh, Isaiah chapter 41, verse 10. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. Yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. In the end, it's going to work out. God has not forgotten us. In fact, one more passage I'd like to read, Isaiah 49, verses 14 through 16. But Zion said, The Lord hath forsaken me, and my Lord hath forgotten me. Can a woman forget her sucking child, that she should not have compassion on the son of her womb? Yea, they may forget, yet will I not forget thee. Behold. I have graven thee upon the palms of my hands. Thy walls are continually before me. He knows who you are. He hasn't forgotten you. He's alive, and all of his purposes will be accomplished. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost will show us a unity for which we should strive. And in service to God and to those around us, we can realize this potential. We appreciate all the support for the Word Preacher podcast. Next week, we will look at Isaiah 50 through 57. Of course, there is a mountain of stuff we did not touch in this coming week's reading. Please study that individually and with your family. Of course, as always, fight on. Thank you.